Good afternoon. Happy to see so many of you back here this afternoon. I just want to say a word of appreciation and thanks and encouragement to those of you who worked so hard to organize this weekend. <clears throat> you know, I know it's, it's, it's a thrill and it's an encouragement and inspiration when uh, once a year or twice a year you have a convocation and people come together and you have speakers come in and, and the house is full and people are smiling and blessed and it's, it's just a real high, isn't it? But I know that there's the rest of the year too. And I know sometimes it can seem like it can seem just like hard work, and you wonder, you wonder if it's worth it all. And I just want to encourage you all here at Restoration and Dunamis and, and uh, your campus uh, program, I just want to encourage you to keep up the good work. Uh, you know, sometimes we, we look at, we look at the, the big scale and we think, well, what, are we, what impact are we making? What change are we making on the thousands? But by God's grace, we can make an impact on one life, right? And one at a time. That's the way souls are one. It's that way in evangelism. It's that way in revival. We need to make, a, make, make an impact one person at a time. And don't, don't give up if the going gets hard. Uh, allow the Lord to keep using you. I'm very blessed to see how God is using you. I'm, I'm happy to be part of a worldwide work. I'm happy to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm happy to see the work that is happening all around the world. I, tomorrow morning, I believe it is, I'm going to share with you briefly just from my experiences last week in, in Norway about how God is working in Norway and in Sweden. And I believe God is trying to finish His work and cut it short in righteousness. And I'm just so happy to be able to be a part of God's work in this last day of earth's history. I'm glad that you are as well. Before we begin our subject for this afternoon, I'd like to just bow our heads and ask an additional word of prayer. Father, today we just are thrilled as we turn to your word and as we see it has answers and instruction for us living in these last days of earth's history. And today we just realize once again that unless your spirit guides us, the word cannot have a, an effect upon our hearts. We need that miracle of conversion. We need to not only be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And so today we come uh, confessing our need and inviting you to fill that need with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today I want to share with you about Abraham, father of the faithful. Very few studies in the Bible have inspired me so much as the study I've recently been doing into the life of Abraham. Now I wish that we could spend, well, I wish we could spend a week or two just talking about Abraham, the father of the faithful in the last generation. But I'm going to try to condense everything that I've been studying and presenting in a, a week-long series into one hour. How's that? What time are we supposed to be finished here this afternoon? The next meeting is not till 7, right? 45 minutes? It's fine. An hour? Okay. Well, by God's grace, I hope that what we share here will be a blessing. You know, we often talk about Father Abraham. And when we were maybe in Sabbath school, we would sing about Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. We talk about Abraham, the father of the faithful. What does it mean to be the father of the faithful? I want to just look with... Uh, you at our Bibles in John chapter 8 at an inter interchange that Jesus had with the Pharisees 
And here we find what it really means to be sons and daughters of Abraham. You know, I've often thought of that song, Father Abraham Had Many Sons, and I've felt that it's just sort of trite and trivial and not very meaningful. But after this study, after I have uh, come to understand more of what it means to be the son of Abraham, that song suddenly took on new meaning. Not that I it's become my favorite song or anything. But I believe that we ought to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. Let's look in John chapter 8 and verse 32. Jesus says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Make you free. Now these were fighting words to the Pharisees. They responded indignantly in verse 33. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Now these were very proud religious leaders. I suppose you have to forgive them. But they didn't know Jewish history very well, did they? Abraham's seed had been in bondage for 400 years. So claiming to be the children of Abraham did not prove that they were not in bondage. And here they say, we've never been in bondage to any man. Jesus said, if you were... Well, I skipped a few verses, didn't I? Let's go back to verse 35, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the what? Servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. Can you say amen? Praise the Lord. The promise is here. If you are Abraham's seed, you are... Uh, free. If you are... Set free by the Son, you are free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my Father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your Father. Very strong words. Jesus said, I'm doing my Father's business, and you're doing your Father's business. And then he continues, they continue, they said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what? You would do what Abraham did. You would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. You see, my friends, he says in verse 44, Ye are of your father, who? The devil, the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, very clearly here in this discussion, I guess you could call it that, that Jesus had with the Pharisees on that day, we can see what makes a person the child of Abraham, Right? Now, we're not talking here about literal children. I don't believe that the literal seed of Abraham is of great import today. I believe they're still blessed. I believe they're blessed mostly because they still follow some of the counsel that God gave them. And God's blessings are the... the there's a natural cause and effect, right? And God can bless us when we follow His counsel. But the Bible's very clear. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, right? So I believe that we as Christians have the privilege of verily being Abraham's seed today. But what determines whether or not we are Abraham's seed is the fruit or the works of our lives. 
In other words, if we are Abraham's seed, then we will be doing the works of Abraham. Is that a fair statement to make? If we are the father of if we are the children of Father Abraham, then we will be living as Abraham lived. And so therefore I go to the life of Abraham with a new interest to see how Abraham lived. And I believe the more I study the life of Abraham, the more I see the characteristics that set him apart from the other Bible characters or the other characters of his time. The more I study the life of Abraham, the more I realize Abraham is going to be the father of the faithful among the last generation. We're just going to look at a few of the characteristics of Abraham's life here together this afternoon. But I want to begin by uh, turning in our Bibles to... Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at Hebrews at a couple of different verses. We're also going to be looking in Genesis at the story of Abraham's life. But Hebrews chapter 11, our scripture for this morning, it speaks of Abraham's faith and of what it led him to do. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 says, By faith Abraham... When he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. The first characteristic that I notice in the life of Abraham was that he left everything. Abraham was called to do something that very few people have been called to do. Now, let's just get our minds around the situation. I teach my students that in order to properly interpret the Bible, apply the Bible that we have to understand the day in which it was written, the situation in which we find the stories, right? What was happening? Abraham was born about 279 years after the flood. Now, this is something you may not have thought about before, but Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Abraham was a contemporary of Noah. God, the, the world had become so wicked that God saw it necessary to destroy the world through a flood. And in that destruction, only eight people were saved. Noah, his three sons, and each of their wives. So eight people total went into the ark. And God, I suppose, thought that now having sort of made a new start, you might say, that the, the world would go on a better course. Humanity would track a little better like it was supposed to be. You would, you would hope so, wouldn't you? I'm sure God certainly hopes so. Less than... While Noah was still alive, humanity was still forgetting God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Abraham was born 270-something years, 279 years, I believe, after the flood, and already most of Noah's family were forgetting God. God had a problem. What was he going to do? He was looking for someone that he would use to institute a different way of not only preserving but promulgating his truth. You see? He would start what we call the patriarchal system. The family of this faithful person would essentially, in today's language, we would say, would be the church of God on earth. You understand? They would be sanctified or set apart from the rest of the world. 
They would be given the sacred oracles of God, the truth of God. They would be meant to be a blessing to the nations around them. That's what God purposed to do. And he found a man named Abraham. Now, what God planned to do with Abraham is singular and unique, as far as I can tell, in the history of humanity. God called Abraham to leave his father's household. I suppose Abraham had a pretty comfortable home. He wasn't a, that young, after all. In today's standards, at least, he was probably about 70 years old when he left Ur. And God called him to leave his family, leave his friends, leave his comfortable home, and go out to a place he wouldn't even know existed until he got there. Go out by faith, not knowing where he was going. The message of God came to Abraham from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 126. The message of God came to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, in order that God might qualify him for his great work as the keeper of the sacred oracles. Abraham must be separated from the associations of his early life. The influence of kindred and friends would interfere with the training which the Lord purposed to give his servant. Now that Abraham was, in a special sense, connected with heaven, he must dwell among strangers. His character must be peculiar, differing from all the world. He could not even explain his course of action so as to be understood by his friends. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and his motives and actions were not comprehended by his idolatrous kindred. You see, my friends, God called Abraham to leave everything, leave what was comfortable, leave what was familiar, leave the influences of his childhood and of his comfortable home. I'm afraid, my friends, that we sometimes are too comfortable in this world. And I believe that God has a call to us today, which sometimes we have not taken very seriously. And that call is to leave, leave the things of this world. Maybe not physically. We're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? But we are to leave, to separate our affections from the things of this world. The Bible is very clear. Come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing and I will be your God. The Bible is very clear, and as Seventh-day Adventists, we have perhaps, at least in theory, comprehended this message more than others. Because we preach. We preach that, for example, come out of her, my people, right? The, thought, the call to those who are in Babylon. But have we really experienced it ourselves? Sometimes I ask myself the question, I've come out of Babylon... But has Babylon come out of me? I tell you, friends, I'm concerned. I'm concerned when I see my friends, my fellow believers, they're thinking more and more like the world. I believe that the devil has a intentional calculated plan to warp our thinking to be more like the thinking of the world than the thinking of Jesus Christ. We are living in a fallen world. 
We are surrounded by messed up minds. And we are constantly bombarded with influences that, 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 that twist the way we think and the perspectives that we have. And our only hope, our only hope, is by spending time in God's Word, bathing our minds in God's Word. Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 15, Now you are clean through the w- w- Word which I have spoken unto you. You see... We read also about the cleansing of the church by the washing of water by the Word. Oh, we need to spend time in God's Word. We need to be studying our Bibles. We need to be studying the inspired counsels that God has given us. And as it says in Great Controversy, none but those who have fortified their minds with the Scriptures will stand in the last great conflict. In fact, we are told so closely will the counterfeit resemble the true that it will be impossible to distinguish between them except by the Holy Scriptures. The devil has a very calculated, very intentional plan to change the way we think. We should have a very intentional, calculated plan to make sure we're thinking the right way. Amen? In, in great controversy, I'm just going to look this up real quick. I wasn't planning to share it, but if you'll bear with me a minute. Great controversy, page 608. I want to share with you the devil's plan. And... Uh, Being forewarned, we can be forearmed, right? Great Controversy, page 608. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. And when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy and popular side. How does that happen? How does a large class of those who have professed faith in the three angels' message abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition? We're told, by uniting with the world, partaking of its spirit, they come to view matters in nearly the same light. When the test is brought, they're prepared to choose the easy and popular side. You see, it's no mystery. We don't need to be surprised. It it isn't because they don't understand the doctrines. Do you understand? It isn't because they don't know that they can prove the Sabbath or the state of the dead. That's not the issue. The issue is they've begun to think of truth and the importance of truth and issues, doctrinal issues perhaps. They've begun to look at it the same way the world looks at it. Maybe it's pluralistic, maybe it's humanistic or moralistic, but they've failed to understand and think the way God thinks. And because their thinking is warped, they choose the easy and popular side. Oh, my friends, we need... We need help from above. You know, I often tell young people, you don't choose whether or not you're going to be influenced. You only choose what influences you will have in your life. You are going to be influenced, no matter where you are. Now, praise God. Wherever God leads you, He will protect you. Amen? 
He called or he led Daniel to Babylon and he protected him in Babylon, didn't he? But, but notice Daniel did not go willingly there. It was not that he went, wanted to study in the University of Babylon and be confirmed in the, in the religions and everything else of Babylon. But God protected him there. And wherever God calls you, he's going to protect you. Praise God. He is able to keep you from falling. And he's, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. He will provide a way of escape for you. But I want you to know that too often when we walk into temptation where God does not lead us, he is therefore not able to protect us from its consequences. And God today is calling for people. He is calling for people who are going to be separate from the world in the way they think. And sometimes that means separating also from our associations. I realize that's a hard message. But my friends, I have to believe it's the truth. God called Abraham to leave what was familiar, even his family, because his family could not understand what God was going to do with him. And in order for God to do with him what he wanted to do with him, he must separate him from his family. And God said, Abraham, leave home. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham was willing to go. Praise God. That's why he became the father of the faithful. That's why he stands as a symbol or a representative of those who are faithful in the last generation. Because I believe they, that those who are faithful in the last generation will also have to be willing to leave everything for Jesus. Oh, so many times youth tell me, but I can't leave my friends. I love my friends. They want to wait to give their lives completely to the service of God until their friends will join them. I tell them the only way to save your friends is to save yourself first. If you can't lead anybody else, at least lead yourself. The only way you can keep your friends for eternity is if they are saved, right? And the only way to really influence them for Jesus Christ is if you'll give Jesus opportunity to live in your life completely. Give yourself unreservedly to Him, and then you can be an influence for your friends. But even if your friends do not follow you, you have to be willing to give them up. I was reading not too long ago sermons by John Wesley. I, I love old books. And I found somewhere, I found a two volumes printed in the mid-1800s of all the known sermons, it claims, that preached by John Wesley. And in this, in, this, in this volume, I read one of his sermons on friendship with the world. And I'm going to spend my whole time on this characteristic if I'm not careful, so I'm going to have to move on. But, but in, this, in this sermon by John Wesley on friendship with the world, he said, in what ways are we meant then to be friends with the world? If friendship with the world is enmity with God, enmity with God if God calls adulterers and adulteresses those who are friends of the world, James 4, verse 4, then what, in what way can we safely be friends with those who are unconverted? He lists three ways. And this isn't necessarily inspired, but I thought it was interesting and thought-provoking. Three reasons why we should be friends with people who are unconverted. Number one, when courtesy demands it, we should associate, be friendly. Be nice, right? Christians should always be nice. When the normal business of life requires it. And number three, when we have a reasonable hope of doing them good. And some people say, well, does that mean that I need to break off my friendships? Does that mean I break off my relationships? I say to them, if 
You, you cannot safely be friends with the unconverted in a mutual peer-to-peer -peer relationship where they're influencing you. The only way you should be associating with them is if they become your mission field and you are involved in intercessory prayer on their behalf and you're looking for every opportunity to share God's word with them and you, you, you're in your association, you have a reasonable hope of doing them good. Otherwise, my friends, as hard as it may be, it's better to be lonely than to be lost. As far as I can tell, Abraham was the alone in his stand, in his worship of the true God. I could be wrong. I'm sure there were others. There was Lot. There was his nephew. There were others who perhaps were going along with him. But Abraham was required, basically, to stand alone in his worship of the true God. And my friends, this is something that we may be called to do also at the end of time. I want to share with you from Youth Instructor, January 5, 1893. Individually, the youth should seek association with those who are toiling upward with unfaltering steps. They should shun the society of those who are absorbing every evil influence, who are inactive and without earnest desire for attainment of a high standard of character, who cannot be relied upon as persons who will be true to principle. Let the youth be found in association with those who fear and love God, for these noble, firm characters are represented by the lily that opens its pure blossom on the bosom of the lake. They refuse to be molded by the influences that would demoralize and gather to themselves only that which will aid the development of a pure and noble character. They are seeking to be conformed to the divine model. The counsel is very clear. Sometimes we just think our friendships and our associations happen by accident, but we're really called upon to make decisions. Choose friends who are toiling upward with unfaltering steps. Now, in the last generation, I'm afraid there will be some times when it seems a bit lonely. Abraham, called by God to leave that which is familiar, to leave his family and friends and that which was comfortable, he obeyed. Let's be the children of Abraham. What do you say? Another characteristic of Abraham. We look in, he, in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to read just for an example here. Verses 7 and 8. Genesis chapter 12. Verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he a what? An altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and high on the east. And there he what? Builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, the Bible could have recorded many of the things that Abram did whenever he moved. He also dug wells. You know, he probably built fences and corrals and stockyards. And he, he had to do a lot of things whenever he moved, right? But the Bible specifically records what? He built 
an altar. In fact, wherever Abraham went, he built an altar. And Abraham, it, it's interesting, Abraham became, Abraham's household became almost like an institution, if you would. Abraham's household would comprise more than a thousand souls, we read in Patriarchs and Prophets. Can you imagine? A thousand souls. That's a lot larger than some institutions. A thousand souls. In fact, she says that people would come and they would join Abraham. They would want to work for Abraham because they wanted to learn about the God that Abraham worshipped. And from Abraham's household, people would be trained to go back into their families, back into their cultures, back into their homes. And we even read that as often a wanderer, a traveler, would be going along the road and they would come across the place where Abraham had built an altar and he would remember the things that he had been taught, the example that Abraham had given. He would remember those things and he would, be, he would be inspired to stop, to repair that altar and to worship the true God. Oh, my friends, Abraham, Abraham was not content to just be a Christian on Sabbath. Abraham's whole life was a witness and a ministry. And everywhere he went, he built an altar. You know, not too long ago, I was on a flight. Um, I think I was actually coming to California, but it was Northern California. And I was sitting next to a fellow who is an executive for a window company. He was coming back from a some sort of a convention in Florida. And we happened to be on the same flight into Sacramento, I believe it was. And uh, but we were talking and found out we had some things in common. He said he was a Christian also. And he started telling me a little bit about his his family and so forth. We were about the same age. Um, he had some little kids. And, and uh, he was telling me about how on certain nights of the week they have family night. And how they uh, they are very... He, the kids are very... Uh, uh, intent that he should always be there on that night of the week and he never misses it he'd missed one i think in the last so many years because he had to be on business but most of the time he's always home on that evening and he started telling me about family worship he started telling me about how every evening they get together and they have family worship together and i sat there and i said well you know i i know what i know what religion this man is And I found myself, I guess, feeling a little disappointed. I didn't, I knew he wasn't Adventist. I knew he was a Mormon. And then he told me a little bit about spending two years in, you know, South America or something. And then I really knew he was a Mormon. He didn't even tell me he was born in Utah. I knew he was a Mormon. I get a little jealous sometimes. Why aren't we known for spending time with our families, for building an altar, and leading the family in the worship of the true God? I'm not, I'm, please, brothers and sisters, I'm not here to criticize or to find fault, and I'm not trying to knock any of those. I know there's many faithful Adventist families who have worship. You understand. But I'm afraid that in Adventist families today, it's not necessarily a given that the family is led in the worship of the true God. And I believe that God would call 
us as a people to greater faithfulness in building our altars. Abraham built an altar wherever he went. In too many households, we're told, in too many households, prayer is neglected. Parents feel they have no time for morning and evening worship. Like the patriarchs of old, those who profess to love God should erect an altar to the Lord wherever they pitch their tent. If there, were, if there was a time when every house should be a house of prayer, it is now. Fathers and mothers should often lift up their hearts to God in humble supplication for themselves and their children. Let the Father, as priest of the household, lay upon the altar of God the morning and evening sacrifice while the wife and children unite in prayer and praise. In such a household, Jesus will love to tarry. Oh, I believe that every single one of our homes should be an institution. A place where people are attracted to learn the worship of the true God. A place from which they will go as light bearers and missionaries, witnesses of what they have learned and of the God they serve and of the God they worship. Oh, that every one of our homes was a beacon of light in this community. That everyone would know there is a a loving and lovable and godly family. A well-ordered Christian household, we continue reading. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 144. A well-ordered Christian household is a powerful argument in favor of the reality of the Christian religion, an argument that the infidel cannot gainsay. Oh, we could have so much influence for good if we, like Abraham, would simply build an altar. If we would worship God. By the way, the worship of God is a special issue at the end of time, isn't it? The great issue that divides is the issue of worship. Will we be worshiping the beast? Or will we be worshiping the Creator? That is the great issue that divides the God's people from the world. Now, Abraham, his, first of all, he left everything. He was willing to leave everything. Second, He built altars. He worshipped. I'd like for us to look a little more in Genesis chapter 13 now. And let's look at another characteristic from Abraham's life. The third characteristic we'll spend time on this afternoon is Abraham's genuine unselfishness. Or we would just say Abraham was selfless. That's a more succinct way of saying it. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 7, verse 6. Let's just begin with verse 5. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together. But their, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. Verse 8. Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. For we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, Abram did something here that was uncommon 
in his day. Abraham, in, in the culture in which he lived, he had the right to take the first choice, didn't he? Abraham had the right as the elder, as the one who had really been the beneficiary of... Is that the right way of saying it? Yeah, Lot had benefited from Abram, right? And so Abraham had every logical and, and a cultural reason to say, you know what, this is where I'm going to pitch my tents. These are the fields my herdsmen are going to occupy. You choose somewhere else. He had that right, didn't he? But Abram, instead of taking the first choice, he genuinely offered Lot to have the first choice. Now, you might say, well, that was just polite. I don't believe so. I think that was Abraham. I don't think Abraham was just being polite and condescending, and he was expecting Lot to say, oh, no, Father Abraham, you choose. And if he had, if that had been what his tactic was, you see, if he was really just trying to be polite and expected Lot to defer, then he probably would have had some resentment or some, you know, Anger and everything we read about the story of Lot and Abraham later shows that Abraham had no resentment, no hard feelings, no grudge, nothing. Abraham was generally altruistic in his motives and he was genuinely unselfish. He was genuinely offering Lot to have the first choice. I've, you know, you can look at the great controversy from many different perspectives, many different frames of reference, right? You can look through a lot of different uh, portholes into the great controversy. And one way, however, that you can describe the great controversy is, a, is really two characters, the character of selfishness and the character of selflessness. Do you understand? Are you following me? Does that make sense? God is love, and if you read the characteristics of agape love, it is selfless love, right? And the, the, the character, on the other hand, of Satan, Satan's character is, I will be like the Most High, right? I will ascend above the stars of the north. Uh, Satan was jealous, as we heard about this morning, that God had, God had not given him the position and the power and everything that he wanted. And so the, the, the great controversy could be boiled down to, in essence, love versus evil, right? Self versus unselfishness. And if we look at the great controversy that is happening in our hearts as well, we could essentially understand it the same. Is our character being transformed into the character of Christ's unselfish love? Or is it being transformed or conformed to the selfishness that is ever, ever present in the world around us? You know what? I don't watch TV much. Um, I don't have one in my house. Of course, I'm not there a lot. But I don't get much opportunity to, to watch television. But let me just ask you a question. Maybe you are more familiar with it than I, and maybe you can teach me a little bit about it. Uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, I guess I might say. Um, when you watch an advertisement on television, is the intention of the advertisement to make you unselfish? I started thinking about it the other day, and I realized almost all the input we get from the secular world is really programming us to live selfish lives. Do you ever stop and think about it? 
I mean, almost everything you see, almost everything that comes into your ears and through your eyes is intended to make you selfish. When you watch that ad on television, you don't say, oh man, I'm glad I can sacrifice that. I don't have to do with that. I don't need that. No, it's meant to make you say, I have to have that. I can't live without it. Let me call right now or go to the store right now. Impulse buyers they're working on. Very, few, very little is, is found on television, which is calculated to make you unselfish. And in fact, if you watch the movies, if you watch the soaps, if you watch whatever else there is on television, you'll find that everything, everyone is just out to get what they can get for themselves. Is that true? And that's normal. That's acceptable. In fact, the more you can get for yourself, the better off you are. And young people are schooled in this way of thinking till they really think, no, you shouldn't be patiently letting somebody turn in front of you when you're in traffic. You should be cutting them off or going around on the shoulder to the front of the line. It doesn't matter if you make everybody else stop and wait. It's what I can get in life. See, the devil is the devil's smart. And the, our whole character is being transformed into the character of Satan, not the character of Christ. Unless we are spending time in God's Word and He is daily transforming our hearts. You see, my friends, Abraham lived a life of genuine unselfishness. Now, from this story, we can learn some other lessons. Why do you think that Abram was willing to let Lot have first choice? What do you think some of the reasons might be? I don't know. I can't read his mind. The Bible doesn't really tell us that kind of detail. But perhaps it's because Abraham knew something. Abraham knew wherever he was, God could bless him. Abraham didn't have to have the best fields. Abraham didn't have to have the greenest pastures. Abraham didn't need the best business environment. Abraham needed God's blessing. And God blesses a, a, a cheerful giver. God blesses a character that's like his. Oh, my friends, you may not become rich, but you will be blessed if you live an unselfish life. And the Bible says that Lot looked at those, that choice. He looked at the options and he, he saw that green, lush valley, the well-watered plains where were situated the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And Lot went and pitched his tents toward Sodom, not in Sodom, but toward Sodom. And the, Abraham went back up into those dry hills where his crops and his herds could never prosper, right? But they did with God's blessing. You see, I have a theory. I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe someday we'll ask Father Abraham. But I have a theory that if no matter where Lot had chosen, Abraham wouldn't have pitched his tents towards Sodom. He didn't lose anything. He would have found some other dry hills away from those wicked cities. I know this could be the politically incorrect thing to say, but I'll say it anyway. God's message for His faithful in the last generation includes a message of country living. 
God wants, God knows his people, if they're living as close as they can to Sodom and Gomorrah, will be sucked into its influences. Study it for yourselves. But I believe God's faithful in the last generation are going to seek a better environment, the best environment they possibly can for their homes and for their families. I want to ask you a question. Does that mean, does that, mean that you won't have the best job opportunities or the best business opportunities? Possibly. I'll be honest with you. Economically, it's not always easy to live in the country, right? There's a lot better jobs or bigger jobs. But a little with God's blessing is far more than all the world has to offer. And just look at the example, the lives of Lot and of Abram. Look at all that he gained by moving to those sin cities, or not at first, but towards those sin cities. Oh, he was wealthy, he was rich, he was blessed. But how much of it did he lose? All of it. And my friends, anything that... How can I say this? Anything you gain in the city that God can't give you in the country, it's probably going to burn someday anyway. Let's be like our father Abraham. Be willing to leave everything. Be willing to give others a first choice. Now the story continues in here in Genesis chapter 13. The story continues on a few verses. Genesis chapter 13. We read in verse, uh, verse 11, or verse 10. Let's just read verse 11 through 13. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now the Bible continues in chapter 14. We'll skip down to that. And the Bible talks about a whole bunch of kings that came against Sodom and Gomorrah. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphil, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. These made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zor. Okay? Quite an exercise in phonetics here, isn't it? All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. So here we find that there, were, there was a great war and eventually these, uh, these cities of the valleys came under the servitude of this consortium of kings and eventually they, they had to be invaded and they came in and they, they conquered Sodom and Gomorrah and the Bible says that they, uh, they, they took the uh, inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah captive. And the Bible says in verse 10, the, the veil of Siddim was full of slime pits. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. 
And they took, verse 11, all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And one of them escaped and went and told Abram the Hebrew. So this is what happened. Now, if Abram had had any resentment towards Lot, it would have come out now. I suppose Abraham would have said something like this. That little Lot, he got what he deserved. After all, he was, he was pretty rude to not allow me to have first choice. Now, too bad. You know, do you ever hear faithful people who almost seem like they rejoice in the demise of those who have been unfaithful? You know what I'm talking about? I'm convinced that when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the characteristics of agape love is it rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. I'm convinced that a person who is, who is patterned after the character of Jesus Christ is not going to rejoice even over the demise of someone who has been unfaithful. I think we need to have character like Christ, like Abraham. I think we should... We should, our hearts should be filled with pity. And here Abraham, he is genuinely concerned about his nephew Lot's condition. These men are wicked. The Bible has already made that clear, right? The men of Sodom and Gomorrah were bad people. They deserve to be destroyed. They deserve to be carried off captive. They deserve for all their dirty riches to be carried away by some other king. They got what they deserved. But that's not Abraham's attitude. Abraham got together his household, 318 trained servants, the Bible says, and they went after them. Now, 318 servants probably didn't hold a candle to the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those weren't little cities. 318 servants, that's like Gideon's army going against these five kings. Abraham took a very big risk, but he knew God was with him. He knew that God was with him and he knew it was a, the right cause. And he went, and the Bible says in, in Genesis chapter 14, that uh, verse 14, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan, divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them, pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Now remember, where were the king of, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah while well, all this is taking place? They had fled for their lives, and they had fell, fallen into the slime pits. <laughs> wherever those were, whatever they were exactly, I don't know. But they were in slime pits. They came, the Bible says in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed them, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Verse 20, And blessed, blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. By the way, Father Abraham was faithful steward, wasn't he? He was faithful in returning unto God that which was his. Another characteristic of Abraham's life.
The Bible says in verse 21, though, the king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Abraham, my friends, had high and uncompromising ethics. Abram rightfully could have said, these possessions are mine. I've saved your life. I'll let you go free. You won't be my indentured servants now. I'll give you that much. But these possessions are mine. And the king of Sodom recognized just that to be the truth, right? He said, listen, take everything. Just let us go free. Thank you. Thank you. We're happy. Have it all. I suppose it was a massive amount of wealth, don't you think? I imagine it would have been a, a very considerable spoil that Abraham would have profited from. But Abraham did not want anyone to go by his tents up there on those barren hills and say, the only reason Abraham's rich is because he got rich off the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted people who came by, if he was rich, to say, Abraham's wealthy because he's blessed of the God of heaven. And he says, I'm not even going to take a shoestring of what I've recovered back. You know, last week I was in a, I was teaching a group of students at the European Bible School in Norway, and I was, I was, I, uh, I told them a story. I guess I can tell you. You might have heard it before. It's a true story of a, of a church that um, um, had a, a tragic fire in their, their building, and the church burned down. It was destroyed. Several hundred thousand dollars worth of damage, and they didn't have insurance and no money to rebuild. And the story was around town, and then they received this anonymous envelope with, like, uh, as I recall, it was about a hundred thousand dollars in cash. That'd be a blessing, wouldn't it? <laughs> and uh, they had a note. They found a note in this envelope, and it said, I read about your church, very sorry about it, um, thought I could help. Recently I won the lottery, and um, here's my gift to help you rebuild the church. Anonymous. Praise the Lord, huh? <laughs> so I... Uh, I asked, I asked these students, I said, what would you do? Would you use $100,000 to build the church? And some said yes, and some said no. And I thought I was going to have a civil war erupt right there in front of me, you know. I mean, there was just going to be some sort of a taking of sides. Well, the church board met together, and they, just, uh, they deliberated what to do. You see, this church had been known as a church that had opposed the lottery when it came into the area. They had preached against it. Now, can you use the money that came from the lottery when you've been preaching against the lottery? Is it consistent? But it's for a good cause. What do you do with it? Yeah, I mean, if you find money and you don't know where it came from, maybe you just have to use it, you know? And so some on the church board said, Lord has provided. Some said, you can't, we can't use it. And finally, they deliberated and they debated and finally they came to the decision, we're not going to use it. And so what did they do? They ran an ad in the paper. They didn't say, whoever lost $100,000, come claim it, you know. <laughs> Some people might not mind that it was lottery money. But 
somehow they ran an ad and and uh, in such a way that the the person would know uh, who they were being uh, addressing to and they they said they could not use the gift and that if they if they would please come and claim it you know they they felt obligated they had to return it well it turned out that the person hadn't won the lottery after all he simply wanted to know if they believed what they preached and he gave several times that amount after learning that they had turned down that gift on principle now if it had been ten dollars or fifty dollars or whatever maybe it would have been easier to turn down but a hundred thousand dollars would be difficult to turn down don't you think all the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah could not induce Abram to compromise his principles God's people at the end of time will not be bought or sold my friends it's not about money Abraham knew one thing. God not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, He owns the very hills themselves. And the God that provided for the, for this wealth could provide any other way He chose for Abraham's need. And He was confident that He didn't need the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah to help God out. You see, my friends, God's people at the end of time, I believe, will have the highest ethics, uncompromising principle, the highest standard of separation from the world. You know, we could go on and on. I challenge you to make a study of the book or the story, not the book of Abraham, but the life of Abraham. Read Patriarchs and Prophets. Read the chapters in Genesis. And notice there are so many ways that Abraham is an example for those of us living in the last days of our history. Now, I have a question for you. Are you the children of Abraham? That's where the rubber meets the road, right? If we are the children of Abraham, the works of our father, we will do. Would you like to be sons and daughters of Abraham today? Abraham, the father of the faithful, even in the last generation. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father, today I just want to thank you that you have called us to a very high calling. And Lord, we've just had a few minutes here to look at a couple of the characteristics that that distinguished Abram's life. Lord, thank you for men who are willing to follow you even if there was nobody else in the world who understood what they were doing. Oh, Father, at least we have friends. We may not see them often. Maybe we're separated by time or distance. But we have friends we know are also following you in the same way and with the same heart and the same purpose. Abraham stood alone. Help us to be willing to leave everything for you. And Father, I just want to pray that you'll help us to do the deeds of our father Abraham. Not because we are disciples of Abraham, but because we, like Abraham, are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're followers of the same God and the same character that you gave to Abraham, you can give to us. Lord, may we be faithful in the last generation. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.